We are starting a sermon series today on stewardship. Now, if you hear that word and you've been in a church for any length of time, you might think to yourself, the first thing that comes is money. This is not a series on money. All right? It is on stewardship. And those two things, while they overlap, stewardship is much larger than money. Stewardship is the way in which you manage something that doesn't belong to you. All right? So, for instance, yesterday, Nancy opened up her home so that the vestry could have a retreat there. We were in her house using her things. We didn't own them. She wasn't even around. How do we take care of that which is not ours? That's stewardship. How did we steward her stuff? If you don't have a truck and you borrow somebody else's to move something, how do you steward that vehicle? How do you take care of it? Our topic for the next four weeks is a broader idea of how do you manage or take care of that which doesn't belong to you. That's what we're studying. Today, we're going to look at the foundational principle of all stewardship. Next week, we're going to look a little bit of accountability and how God views this. And then for two weeks, it's going to be very practical. All right? What does it look like to steward your time? What does it look like to steward your family, your job, your money, whatever it may be? We're going to break down those things and look at all of them. All right? So that's our, that's our series for the next four weeks. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for all that you have provided for us. Help us to understand better how you view us, how you view stewardship, the call that you have on our lives. Let our hearts and minds be open to your word and to your spirit, that we might be changed more into the image of Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Orbital eccentricity. I'm sure you've used that word a few times today already. Very popular word that people use a lot. Orbital eccentricity. What it refers to is the measure of deviation of an orbit from circular. Does that help? The deviation of an orbit from being circular. All right, let's make it simpler. Tetherball. Everybody remember tetherball? You've got a pole, you have a ball, it's got a cord that suspends that ball. You stand on one side, somebody stands on this side, and you try and knock it, and the first person to get it to wrap that way wins the game. Now, when you first start hitting that ball, at times it's doing this and not making a circle. It's deviating from a circular orbit around that pole. Orbital eccentricity is the measurement of how far it deviates. How big is that oval, right? Here's my question for us. What is your orbital eccentricity in relationship to God's design of you? If you looked at how God designed you, and that was the center point, and then you took your life and you looked at its orbit around that, how circular is that orbit? Where are the areas where it's going whoa, way out here and you are further away from how God designed you than what God may want you to be and honestly, probably what you want to be? What is our design? That's what we're looking at today. You would open up your Bible. Well, 
I say that, and I realized last, last time when I preached, I didn't actually read from Genesis 1 until like 20 minutes into the sermon. But open up your Bible to Genesis chapter 1. It can be sitting on your lap open. We're going to go way back to the beginning. Uh, if this, this is a design question, so it's a creation question. This is not a, what has God gifted you for? This is not, what is God maybe calling you to a particular moment in your life as a decision? This is a much more fundamental question. How did God design you? How did God design me? So we're going back to Genesis chapter 1. Now, Genesis chapter 1, I want to just admit this up front. Some of you are aware of this. Some of you are not. It doesn't matter. It's fine either way. There are a lot of questions and debates about Genesis chapter 1. Creationism versus evolution. 24-hour period of time, a whole million years, whatever it may be, period of time. Let us make man in our image. Is the us the trinity? Is the us a plural of majesty? Is the us a what is it? The spirit of God in chapter 2. Is that the Holy Spirit? Is that just a way of saying God's power? Um, is that the wind? Because wind and spirit in Hebrew are the same word. There are a lot of questions and a lot of debates about Genesis chapter 1. We're not tackling that this morning, okay? In fact, I'd make this argument to you. This is, this is how I personally feel. Many of those debates and arguments are there because we, as 21st century people, are asking the text to answer questions it wasn't written to answer. We're trying to force it to say something that it was never written to say, right? That there was something that God was doing as he inspired this text to convey something to those people. And our real question needs to be, what was God trying to convey to them that then translates into our living as opposed to what is it that we want to ask it to say and force that answer? Now, please understand in saying that, here is my view on scripture. I believe it is inspired by God. I believe it is the foundation of the life of any Christian believer. It is a very um, important, vital, central uh, everything to my personal life. But here's what some people will say about what I'm about to say about Genesis chapter 1. But do you take the Bible seriously? Because if you don't take that literally as I am reading it, you probably don't believe in the Bible the way that I do. Because what I'm about to say about Genesis chapter 1 may be different from what many of you have heard. Right? However, when you read something, you have to pay attention to its genre. You have to pay attention to the style. You can't read everything the same. Let me give you a good example. Right? In the Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 8. It says, I saw my beloved jumping over the mountains and leaping over hills. Now, just take that literally for a moment, okay? The world record for the broad jump is just over 12 feet. The world record for the high jump is just over 8 feet. This guy just blew them all away. He's like ancient Superman leaping over mountains. Do any of you see that when that is read? But you're not taking it literally if you don't. Isn't that the literal reading of that? The question is not about literalness. The question is about intent of the author. 
You have to be able to see images. You've got to be able to recognize culture. You can't just take our understanding and go, well, it says this, it must mean that. Right? And so our goal is to step back a little bit and try to answer this question. What would those Jews in 1300 BC have heard when Genesis 1 was read? It's not going to be perfect because none of us are there, but we can get some good ideas. What would they have heard? Because that's, that's what we want to take away from this text. Right? So first, let me just start with a brief overview of Genesis chapter 1. It is symmetric. It is poetic. It is beautiful. Right? Genesis chapter 1 starts by describing the world like this, without form and empty. Those two descriptions, and then there is darkness. Now, if you start reading through the days, days 1 through 3, they're going to form that which had no form. And days 4 through 6 are going to fill that which was empty. It's very symmetric, and it's set up like that on purpose. Then if you start comparing the actual days and you put them next to each other and you take day one where he takes there is only darkness and he forms light and darkness. Literally, he's forming them because there's no luminaries yet. There's no moon. There's no sun. There's no stars. He's forming that. Then on day four, which sits next to it, he fills it up. He puts the sun, the moon, and the stars into it. On day two, he forms the seas and the expanse. And then on day five, he puts the fish and the birds into it. On day six, he forms the earth, and then on, I mean, day uh, three, sorry, on day six, he puts the animals and the humans on it. There's also a pattern. Every single day sounds the same. God says, let there be, and it was so. And God looked, and he said, it's good. And then there was morning, and there was evening. There's a pattern going all the way through. It is a very well-composed, symmetric narrative in a poetic kind of style that is Genesis 1. What was God saying to his people when that was put together like that? Now, to answer that question, I've got to give you one other background thing. So there's a lot of background here. If you want to get an idea of, so Genesis chapter 1, the notes that I sent to the teachers, like all of our teachers get notes based on the sermon. It's 38 pages typed. I am not going to preach 38 pages typed up here this morning because you would be here past the 3.30 start of the Cowboys game. <laughs> it's that much information. All right, we're really narrowing things down. All right, but there is so much in here. However, in order to, to ground us, in the middle of the 1800s, they discovered in Egypt something called the Enuma Leash. It's a Babylonian creation account. And here was the significance of that creation account. It shared a bunch of similarities with Genesis. They both start the same. The actions are the same in creation. Even some of the language is the same of the waters below and the waters above. I mean, there's so many similarities. It's, it's like this. I have not paid nearly enough attention to the presidential debates. Right? On the Republican side, there's so many of them that I can't keep track of them anyway. I am much more concerned about what SNL is going to do to parody these things because they do such an amazing job and what they're going to do with Donald Trump is just going to be awesome. In 2008, when Tina Fey did Sarah Palin, if anybody remembers it, it was amazing. 
I mean, you all, when they stood side by side, you almost couldn't tell who was who. I mean, it's that good. The mannerisms, the inflections, the voice, all of it, even the, the glass, I mean, all of it. But could you imagine somebody seeing that parallel and going, wow, what a coincidence. Tina Fey got up and happened to dress just like Sarah Palin today. You know that was intentional. There's so much similarity, you know that was intentional. There is so much similarity between the Enumelish and Genesis chapter 1 that scholars were going, wow, who copied who? At one point, the Enumelish was being called the Babylonian Genesis because it was just, there's so many similarities. However, the more you discover about that culture, the more they actually started seeing that basic story, it wasn't just the Enumelish and Genesis. There were other cultures that had the same basic components to creation stories. What in the world does that mean? That Genesis and Babylon and Samaria, and they're all sharing components of a story. This is what I would argue it means. The point of Genesis chapter 1 is found in the differences. That God inspired a text that actually paralleled other creation accounts except for some very, very key areas. I think of it like this. I'm going to quote a verse to you that all of you are going to know. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Let me quote it differently to you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten daughter, that whoever believes in her should not perish but have everlasting life. Does anything in the second one stand out to you? I mean, even if you're not listening, would you, what? what? Say that again. Did I hear what you just said? Because when you take something that's really familiar and you alter something in it, it stands out. What was altered? What is it that God said, you know what? I don't care about some of this. I got a point to make for you. And I, this, I think there are three things in Genesis chapter 1 that are significantly different than all the other creation accounts. And it points us to the message of Genesis chapter one. Here's the first. A single God that is all powerful. Here's the enumeration, enumeration and other ones. There are a bunch of gods and they fight among each other. They war, they deceive each other. They're almost like superhumans. They look more like Greek gods at times than anything like Yahweh of the Bible. Yahweh, Genesis, it is the only account where you have this single, all-powerful God that is speaking existence into existence. Just let that sink in for a minute. I was, a couple weeks ago, I was putting together a ceiling fan. Took me like three hours and so I'm putting the ceiling fan together. I get to the end, and I walk. It's outside. I walk back in the house, and there's a piece sitting on the counter. <laughs> One piece sitting on the counter. I grab the piece, and I'm going, what is up there? I, I had to pull the whole thing down, redo this sucker. Hey, God sneezes, and a galaxy exists. I can't even put a ceiling fan together. <laughs> the power that is behind this, God just whispers, and there's a new planet. 
That is so unlike any of these other creation accounts. That kind of absolute, unlimited authority and power, and there's no peers. It's not Yahweh plus all these other gods that he's in charge of. It's Yahweh. That's it. And his people would have seen that because they were surrounded by gods, multiple gods in multiple communities and societies and cultures, all of it, but not us. There's one, one God, and he's unlike all the other ones. Right? That would have been the first thing that stood out to them. Number two, when God is creating, and Toby mentioned this last week, you keep seeing this, God saw and said it was good, but that saw is not like, oh yeah, out of the corner of my eye, I noticed something. Hey, he's wearing a black shirt. Okay, let's keep going. That was not the saw. This was an evaluation. God created something, and then he looked at it, and he said, it is good. And good in this case is not good versus evil. It's not a moral thing. Like I made the moon and went, oh, the moon is morally good. It's not a moral thing. It's an evaluation of its function. God is saying, you are exactly what I made you to be. You are doing exactly what I created you to do. You are in exact relationship to this thing over here as I intended. As each day goes along, you have God saying, that's exactly what I wanted. That is exactly how I intended. That is the perfect way for you to do this versus this. You fill that space just as I wanted you to do it. It's that kind of evaluation, right? I'm on 190. I'm getting ready to get off on the toll road, the North Dallas toll road. And if you know that particular off-ramp, on-ramp, off-ramp, it's kind of both is the problem. It comes up and it goes down and like it doesn't just merge onto the North Dallas toll road. You either merge or you have to get off on park. Well, I'm coming down in my little tiny car, and I start to move over to merge, and there's like a giant monster truck, and his front wheels are at my back wheels. So I try and speed up, but I'm in a hybrid, so it doesn't really go much faster. So I do best I can. He speeds up. And like, I'm getting to the point where either I'm going to run right into the median, or I have to get off on park, and I'm thinking... My goodness, all you had to do is do this. Like you'd have lost five seconds on your trip and I'm getting ready to either lose my car or lose like five minutes because I'm gonna have to get off, hit the light, go back on. So I slow down. I thought I'm gonna get over now. I start to go over. Another person speeds up so that I can't get off. Only in Texas. (laughs) Or in Utah, apparently. And I mean, I hit my horn so hard it hurt my hand. It was very, very priest-like. And I'm thinking, this, if God could see this right now, he would say, that is not good. Because that's not the way the lane was meant to work. It was meant to merge over and for that person to slow down. And then I'm sitting there and somebody starts honking at me, which really, really frustrated me. Until I looked in my rearview mirror and there were like 10 cars behind me because I'd almost come to a stop right in the middle of this exit. I'm sitting in a stop because I'm trying to get over and it's about me. That's not how it's supposed to be. When God says good, he's saying you're doing, it's doing exactly how I intended it, how I designed it. That's what I meant. Now, take an all-powerful God who speaks things into existence 
who only designs things that are exactly what he wants them to be. Which, by the way, that also is completely different. The creation stuff that goes on the Anubilish, it's described at times as evil and wicked and confused. I mean, it's, it's very different. Then you get to the third and most important aspect. And it is the one that answers this question about our design. If you would, see, 20 minutes, I'm finally to the, to the Bible. Go to Genesis chapter 1 and look at verse 26. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us, all right, if you're reading the story up to this point, you have to stop right there. Because every other creation is, let it be. Let there be light. Let there be this. Let there be this. All of a sudden, the pattern changes. Let us. It's personal. It has not been personal up to this point. Something is happening here that is different. Let us make man in our image. Now, if you know anything about Judaism, you are not to make an image. You can't make images. Right? And, and Deuteronomy gives you a reason. You can't make an image because you don't know what God looks like, and he doesn't look like any of the birds or the fish or the animals or anything else in creation. So you don't even know what to make an image of. But you're not supposed to make an image. Images in this part of the world during this period of time, all the gods had images. You would have had images. You'd have these little idols that you would stick somewhere because that is where the power of the God would often enter into your life. Those images would represent the gods. Well, in Judaism and in Christianity, we're not supposed to make images according to the commandments. But you know why? Not only is it because we don't know what God looks like and he's nothing like anything on this created earth, but number two, let us make man in our image. There is an image of God that is on the earth, but it's not an idol. It's not a little figurine. It's you. It's us. This divine, all-powerful being that created, you know, Toby mentioned billions of galaxies. He created all of them. That one who said all of it is good, just what I wanted it to be. He also said, now for the pinnacle of my creation, let us make man in our image. Nothing else in creation is made in the image of God except for humanity. And this is so different. In the Enumelish, this is what happens. Marduk, one of the gods, gets into a fight with Tiamat, defeats Tiamat, slices her body in half. She's water. That's where the water below and the water above comes, and he puts her up like that. But then all the gods that were fighting on Tiamat's side are banished to the earth to be the slaves of the rest of the gods. They have to build the temples to the gods and do the sacrifices and take care of the canals and all this manual labor. Well, at some point... A bunch of gods down there are like, what's up? We're gods. We shouldn't be doing this. We should be on a beach drinking a margarita. But instead, we're down here serving like slaves. And so Marduk goes, I got an idea. And Marduk goes to one of the supreme gods and says, I got an idea. And so they invite the general who fought for Tiamat into the throne room, and Marduk stabs him, kills him, takes the blood. Here's another connection to Genesis. Takes the earth, 
puts them together and makes mankind for one purpose, one purpose, to be the slave of the gods, to go down there and do all the stuff that the gods didn't want to do anymore. And so they could be let back up into the skies and do their thing. That is not Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, we are created in the image of our creator and let them have dominion. They are created to rule, not as slaves, not because the gods didn't want to do something, but to rule. We are created inherently with a particular dignity in every single human being that is made in God's image and is then told, I designed you that you would take the good creation that I made and you would, let me use the word, steward it. We are fundamentally designed to take care of what God made. And that's everything. I mean, just ask, answer this question for yourself. What does not belong to God? According to Psalm 24, the earth and everything in it belongs to him, including you. No matter what you own, he owns it first. And here is Genesis 1 saying, I made you to be my representative. I made you to actually take care of, to steward all the good things that I created, including yourself, your life, your family, where you are working, your vehicles, your home, your time, your money, all of it. And brothers and sisters, this is a privilege. I mean, you're made in the image of the king. This isn't like some horrible, oh man, how did he do this to me? It's God going, I've made everything else and now I'm gonna do my most special creation. I'm gonna make humanity to be my representative. I'm gonna make them in my image and I'm gonna hand over what I've made. And let me just show you the heart of that God. We've messed that up. Anybody disagree with that? I mean, we have messed that up. We have messed up the environment. We have messed up our families. We have messed up relationships. We have messed up our stewardship responsibility. And instead of God giving up on us, God sent his son to die for us that we might have forgiveness and new life and continue to live out what he first called us to. I mean, think about, think about a great gift that you gave to somebody. I mean, think about something that maybe it took you a lot of time or a lot of money, and you just handed it to somebody and said, I want to give this to you, and they just ruined it. Is your first thought, you know what, I'm just going to go buy them another one. They just stomped on that thing that I gave to them, but I'm going to go buy another one and give it to them. Here is God who makes all of this beautiful creation, all of these people, and says, I'm making you in my image, and we just desecrate it. And then God goes, all right, now I'm going to send my son to redeem them, to give them another chance to live what I wanted them to live. That's the God that we serve. It is a beautiful thing that we have being made in his image. And that is the main thing. If you take anything with you today, I want you to take that. The foundation of all stewardship is that inherent in our very design we were made to represent God who owns all things. 
we were made to care for what really is his. Take that with you today. In Bryan, Texas, there's a high school called Rudder High School. And 1,600 kids go to this high school, big high school. Something happened in 2013 that was very special. There were six kids that graduated that shouldn't have graduated. And it's not because they got really bad grades. Uh, It's not because of a drug problem or something like that. It's because all six of them had dropped out. The reason that they graduated is because two times a year, there's a group of people from Rudder High School that go door to door to every kid that has dropped out. And they ask them to come back. And they try to understand what happened. And the school is helping them take care of things. If there were financial issues or health issues, or they're trying to help these kids so they can get them back into school. You know who's leading those groups? The principals. There are six principals at this school. The principals are leading this. The, the heads, the guys who run the school, they're not going, hey, you guys, go over to those people's homes. The principals are getting out and going door to door. This year, the last one they just did, they went to 140 homes with kids who had dropped out. And the principals are leading it. And this is what one of them said. Bernie Mays is one of the principals. He said, the percentage of kids we have dropping out of our school districts is the same as in most school districts. So their dropout rate isn't like huge compared to everybody else. Um, I wouldn't say it's a major issue in our school, but it's an issue. And yet, hear this. If I have one dropout, it's an issue for me. I want every kid to graduate. It's the reason we're in education. That is stewardship. That is a principle who says education is right here in the center and I'm going to orbit everything around it. Every kid matters. My time, my energy, my planning, I'm going to put it into making sure that these kids get an education. And it doesn't matter that I'm the principal, that I'm in charge, that I could just send people out to do it. I'm going to do it. That is stewardship and that is an orbital eccentricity that is very small around education. What happens if you stick God's design for you right here and you start orbiting your life around it? Are you taking seriously you are made in the image of God, made to represent him, that all that you own is his, and he's letting you manage it. He's letting you care for it. He's giving you that privilege. What are you doing with that? How far is your orbit going like this into an oval? And how far is it actually circling? Right around your design, I am made in the image of God to represent the creator of the universe and have the privilege of taking care of his stuff. Pray with me. Gracious Heavenly Father, Thank you for creation. Though we have not always taken care of it well, from the environment to our own bodies, to our families, Lord, help us to recognize fundamentally who you are 
and who you made us to be, that we get the joy and privilege of representing you, of taking care of what you have gifted to us. Help us to take that in deep into who we are and to live lives that would honor you as our creator and our savior. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.